0: Welcome, Vineyard family. We're so pleased that you've joined us. Um, We are in this series turning setbacks into comebacks. It's a great series for 2020, as many of us have experienced unexpected setbacks during this time. And in this series, we're looking at the lives of biblical figures, people like Elijah or Paul or or Job, and, and drawing principles and illustrations for our own lives from their stories. And we are going to look today at the life of King David. David was uh, born around 1,000 BC. He would ultimately rule as king of Israel for 40 years. Um, and there's a lot to learn from King David's life about setbacks, about setbacks. Now the immediate context for David's life is he is from Bethlehem. He is the youngest of eight boys. His father's name is Jesse. And and David is a shepherd. David's a shepherd. The other important piece of this story is that there already is a king in Israel, King Saul. And what we find is that Saul is tall, he's handsome, he's charismatic, everything that you think a king would be. But he doesn't trust and love God in his heart. And so God rejects Saul. And God goes to the prophet Samuel and he says, I'm going to anoint a new king of Israel. So go to Bethlehem and go to the house of Jesse Because I'm going to anoint one of his sons king. So Samuel does this. And Jesse brings all of his sons together. And Samuel sees the eldest son. And and he's tall. He's strong. He's handsome. Everything that Saul is. And Samuel thinks, this has got to be the next king. But God says, no. And down the line, Samuel goes. And every time, God says, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. Finally, Samuel says, well, do you have any other sons to Jesse? And Jesse, almost in a flippant manner, says, well, yeah, my youngest son, he is out tending the flocks, not even really worthy of consideration to be here. And that's the attitude and the sense that we get from Samuel, it's the sense that we get from Jesse, and it's the sense that we get from David's brothers, that he's not even worth their time and consideration. So some of you may be able to empathize and relate to David's plight, because for some of you... You have been in situations where family has set you back, that family has set you back. But let me begin with a word of good news that we draw right from the story of David. And that is this, that God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. And this is what God told the prophet Samuel when Samuel was so enamored with David's older brother because he seemed to look so kingly. See, God tells Samuel this. He says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, some of you perhaps come from families that did not give you the love and care that you needed to flourish. In fact, some of you may have come from families where you were mentally, emotionally, or even physically abused. Some of you come from families where your parents were so busy taking care of themselves because maybe they were alcoholics or drug addicts that they didn't have time for you. Or perhaps you just didn't come from a family that was able to give you, uh, you know, great education. You didn't grow up in a great neighborhood. And to the world, that may disqualify you from being taken seriously, for being worthy of consideration. But I'll tell you what. The story of David tells us that God looks at the heart. And here is the good news. And it is the good news of the scripture. It is the good news of the gospel that your background does not disqualify you from the grace of God. See, God often flies in the face of worldly wisdom and what the world considers matters of success. Look at this in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think They are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. See, the good news is that your background doesn't matter because it's not your education, it's not the car you drive, it's not your neighborhood, it's not your house, it's not the amount of money that you have that qualifies you before God. It is the blood of Jesus Christ and only the blood of Jesus Christ that qualifies you. So some of you may be saying, well, what about me, Josh, because I came from a great family, had loving parents, a good education, lots of advantages, and I've gone out and I've tried to do the best I can in the world. You should be thankful. You should understand that as a blessing from God and be thankful, but you should be cautious because sometimes we can be tempted to think that it's our title or our position or our prestige or the size of our bank account that somehow qualifies us before God. But it does not. It does not because what does Paul tell the Romans? No one can ever boast in the presence of God because it is only by the blood of Jesus. We are all sinners saved by grace. So hallelujah and thanks be to God. And thanks be to God that he does not leave us in our sin, Because that's the other part of the good news that we can draw here from David's life. And that is that God gives the Holy Spirit. Look at what the book of Samuel tells us. It says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is anointed David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David." Now, here's the good news, folks, that if you are a follower of Christ, that you have been given the Holy Spirit, God living inside you. You don't have to be a king like David. You don't have to be a prophet like Samuel or like Moses. No, you as a child of God receive the Holy Spirit working in and through you to free you and to help you live and grow in holiness. This, my friends, is wonderful, good news. Because some of you have had family backgrounds that have set you back, and we don't need to deny that. Let's be realistic about it. Some of you struggle with anger because you had parents that flew into fits of rage. Some of you struggle with greed because you had parents and grandparents that taught you to equate success with money. Some of you struggle with sexual sin because you were introduced to sexual sin from an early age. And the list could go on. We have developed from uh, our background and sometimes from our family upbringing patterns of sinful thought and behavior. But guess what? You have been given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you to change you and to set you free. Look at what Paul tells the church in Rome. He says, Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Thanks be to God. And so we want the Holy Spirit to control us more and more. Because I'm here to tell you, that your family background, your upbringing does not have to define you. Define you by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be set free from behaviors and patterns and chains that have bound you for long, a long time. Look, just a few verses later, what does Paul tell the Romans? For you did not receive a spirit of slavery, That returns you to fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship, daughtership, by whom we cry, Papa, Father. You've been adopted into a new family through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-workers with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Thanks be to God, you are part of a new family, and those old family habits and patterns of behavior can be broken by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now maybe it's not your family that has set you back. Maybe it's others who have set you back. Maybe those who are outside of your circle of friends, those who are outside of your family. Maybe these are coworkers. Maybe these are just strangers that you meet. Maybe these are acquaintances. Others have set you back. Well, David's life speaks to this as well. So you see, this leads us to probably one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, and that is the showdown between David and Goliath. Now, the context here is that David is still a shepherd boy. He's not a warrior yet, but his brothers have gone away to fight in King Saul's army, And the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, this people group they were always at war with. And one of these Philistines is a giant by the name of Goliath. Well, Jesse, David's father, sends David to bring his brothers some food. And so he travels to the battlefront. And there he witnesses Goliath taunting the armies of Israel. And it enrages David. And ultimately, David decides that he will fight Goliath, despite being really unmatched. And here's the reason why David was confident, because David knew that God keeps his promises, that God keeps his promises. So we have to be very careful as Christians about how we apply this story in our own lives, because we're always tempted to kind of think every ache, every discomfort, every pain, every annoying coworker, every person who cuts us off on the interstate is our Goliath, and they need to be slain by God. Well, I don't know if that's the best way to always apply this scripture. I think the the best principle that we can derive from this story is this, that God keeps his promises. Because here's the thing. God had made promises to the people of Israel. He had said, this land is yours. Hence the name promised land, right? Right? put that together, promised land, right? He had said, this land is yours and I'm giving you the right and the promise and the power to drive the pagans from the land. So when David goes to face Goliath, he can stand on an express promise of God. This is what God wants me to do and I'm gonna face this giant. Look at what David says. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And so uncircumcised there, see circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was a sign that Israelites uh, had access to God's promises. So what David is saying is, you uncircumcised Philistine, meaning a person who does not have access and rights to God's promises. He says, who is this? That he should defy the armies of the living God. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he has defied the armies of the living God, And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. So it's really important if we want to think about it, well, how do I apply this in my life? Well, how did David deal with others who were setting him back? He knew God's promises. He knew God's promises very well. And I want you to know God's promises. So I want to take kind of a, a, a parenthetical stop here just to talk a little bit about how do we read promises in the scripture. And this is not an exhaustive way of describing this, but I'm going to give you three simple questions to ask yourself when you come to promises in scripture. So the first is, is it a promise or is it a proverb? You see, a proverb is a wise saying. It's an observation of human behavior. Generally, humans act like this. So, a great example of this comes from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, this is a proverb, not a promise, okay? This isn't guaranteed this is going to do it every time. We have all dealt with enough people to know that sometimes we can give a gentle answer and we still get wrath in return, Okay? But when we're dealing with a coworker who seems to you know, be bent on setting us back every Monday morning as soon as we arrive at, at work, this is a good proverb to live by, right? That we want to be gentle, that we want to have kind words for our coworkers. But it's not a promise that this is always going to work. Now, a good way to distinguish between proverbs and promises is proverbs tend to be based on human behavior, right? Generally speaking, this is how humans behave, okay? That's a proverb. But humans are fickle, and so it's not a guarantee. Promises in Scripture are generally rooted in the character and person of God, who is consistent and not fickle. So, we want to ask ourselves, is this a proverb or a, prom- a promise? And then another question is, is this promise conditional? Because there are many promises out there that are conditional, meaning That if we want to actualize that promise from God, there's something that we have to do to actualize it. A great example we can find in Philippians. And again, this is helpful when we're having a bad week or a bad day. We're dealing with people who are setting us back. We can take comfort in this promise. What does it say? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here's the promise and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus that's a wonderful promise when dealing with people who are setting you back but we have to realize that we can't just start with the promise because in scripture we can see that there is indeed a condition And that condition is we have to bring our anxiety to God. We need to pray. We need to bring our thanksgiving and our supplication to God. And when we do that, the promise is peace. That surpasses all understanding. And we need that peace when others are setting us back. So some promises are conditional, something we need to do for then the promise to be actualized. And then finally, a good question to ask is, is the promise applied correctly? I'm going to give you an example of a promise in scripture, and then we'll talk a little bit more about this. This is a famous one in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, in some ways, this actually is a conditional promise, right? Because we have to delight ourselves in the Lord, and then he gives us the desires of our heart. But I also think it's a good example of a promise that can often be abused by people. You see, we say to ourselves, oh, I get the desires of my heart. That's a promise from God. But here's the thing. God's promises are never going to contradict other parts of Scripture. God's promises are never going to contradict God's holiness and his revealed character to us. So you may be saying, oh, I'm stuck in a loveless marriage. My, mar- you know, my spouse doesn't love me. My spouse is setting me back. I want love and I want to experience love in my life and God wants to give me the desires of my heart and therefore I'm going to engage in a marital, extramarital affair uh, because clearly that is meeting a promise by God. Now, I know that's twisted thinking, but sin twists our thinking. But that's not a promise from God because we know it contradicts uh, God's express command uh, against adultery. Or maybe you're saying I have this annoying coworker who sets me back and makes my life horrible all week long. Well, I just want the peace of God. God wants to give me the desire of my heart. So I'm going to engage in gossip. I'm going to maybe even stretch the truth a little bit to make that coworker look bad and maybe they'll get fired or maybe they'll quit. Okay? This clearly isn't walking in the promises of God because It's in direct contradiction to God's express command not to gossip and not to lie. So promises are never going to force us to walk in sinful behavior, ever. So we need to ask ourselves a series of questions when we come to promises in the Scripture. And then we can say with full confidence, this is God's promise to me as a son or daughter of God. And that's a wonderful thing because then we can root our identity in those promises. And that is the best way to deal with uh, setbacks from other people. Now, after David defeats Goliath, we see his fame spreads throughout the land. Saul brings him into his own household. David actually marries one of Saul's daughters. David becomes best friends with one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, and David becomes Saul's greatest warrior. What happens is is that Saul becomes jealous of David and plots to kill him. And so David has to flee and he flees into the wilderness. And though we're not exactly sure how long he is fleeing Saul, clues in the scripture seem to point to about eight long years. Can you believe it? Eight years that David is fleeing. He's on the run from Saul. He's living in caves. He's living out in the open. This is not a good life. And we see that David's life, therefore, teaches us a lot about when leaders set you back, when bosses set you back. Maybe you've had pastors who have set you back. Maybe, you know, others uh, in roles of authority over you have set you back. Well, as I read this scripture and I read the life of David and I studied it as I was preparing for the sermon, I found some things very surprising and convicting. And so let's pick up the story what we see is that David is fleeing from Saul. He's hiding in a cave with his men. David, or Saul's army is pursuing him. And what happens is that Saul has to use the restroom. It's a true story, right? And so he's like, there's a cave up there. I'm going to go relieve myself from that cave. It's the same cave that David and his men are hiding in the back of. So here's Saul all alone. Okay, he doesn't have any guards around. And David and all of his men are hiding in the same cave. And this is what David's men say to him. They say, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're saying, go kill this guy. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. That is Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed." or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. This is so surprising that as a man of integrity, okay, that David, what we see is he respects God's command to honor authority, to honor authority. And this seems so counterintuitive because David is the rightful anointed king of Israel. Saul has been rejected by God. Saul is mentally unhinged. He's leading Israel into all kinds of idolatry and problems. And yet David, even in the midst of this, even after running for years for his life, he honors Saul. He honors a person in authority over him. What a response to when those in leadership are setting you back. It takes a humble heart and it takes a lot, a lot of grace by God. But you know what? We see this theme throughout Scripture from beginning to end. And I can just give you a few. We see here, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Or here we see in the book of Hebrews, obey your spiritual leaders, that's your pastors, and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Or here in Romans, the famous passage about how we interact with government. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. There is a pattern of behavior for God's people throughout Scripture, and that is to honor authority. Now, I think that this is about the default setting of our hearts. The default setting of our hearts is the default setting of our hearts to honor authority. So when we're dealing with a difficult boss, is our default setting to honor them? Or is it to gossip about them? Is it to undermine them in any way that we possibly can? When we think about, maybe for those of you who are younger, when you think about your parents, is your default setting to say, I want to honor my mother and father Or is it to go against everything that they're telling me to do? Maybe it's government. Is your default setting to to rant on Facebook? Or is it to pray for your political leaders, even when they're not of your political persuasion? Or is our default setting with our pastors to say, well, if you don't play the music I want and give the lighting that I want and preach the sermon that I want, I'm just going to go to a different church. Are these the default settings of our heart or are the default settings of our heart to honor authority? Now we can balance this theme in command and scripture with other parts of Holy Scripture. This is not to say that we should allow ourselves to be harassed or abused by our bosses. No, go to your human resources department and report that. It's not to say that you can never leave a church if your conscience is truly, truly violated or that a pastor is preaching something unbiblical from the pulpit. Okay? It's not to say that you shouldn't go out and campaign for your political persuasion and go to vote. Those are things that we can do as Christians and should do. But let's ask about the default setting of our heart. Like David, is it to honor and respect authority? Now, I want to talk briefly just about a few observations, some general observations from David's life, because I think they're going to be helpful for us as we think about when others set us back. And here they are. I won't spend too long on each one of these, but I think they are helpful uh, they're observations from the whole of David's life. And I would really encourage you, if you have time this week, to go and look up the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel and read about David's life on your own. It's a fascinating one. He's a, a man of God. Uh, and, um, and I think we can learn a lot from, from David's, both his his successes and his failures. But one of the first things that we see is that God's presence does not mean the absence of problems. See, David, from the time that he was anointed to the time that he took the throne of Israel, it was 15 long years. and eight of those, he was on the run from Saul. God's presence doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have the absence of problems in your life. So keep that in mind. I think that's an important one as we think about when others set us back. Another general observation is God's glory is David's highest priority. We see this throughout David's life, right? Why does God um, honor David? Because it says that he looks at the heart. God looks at the heart, and when he looked at David's heart, he saw that he delighted in God. Why is David offended, so deeply offended by Goliath? Because Goliath is insulting his God. And why does David honor Saul, even when Saul is trying to kill him? Because David knew that Saul had been God's anointed and he respected and loved God. God is the highest priority for David. And so that's a good mental and spiritual check for ourselves. When others make us angry, can we just pause and ask ourselves, am I angry with this person? Do I believe this person's setting me back on behalf of God and his kingdom and God's work? Or is it really just because of my own felt need my own selfish desires? That's a great question we can ask ourselves because I think oftentimes we have to admit, I'm not angry for God's behalf. I'm angry because I didn't get what I want. And David teaches us that God's glory should be our highest priority. And then we see that godly friendship is essential. You see, all throughout David's life, his best friend Jonathan, Saul's own son, was a key figure in David's life and helped him get through so much. Friendship was essential to David's life and friendship is essential to us. See, human behavior is that when we get hurt by other people, we have a tendency to withdraw and to isolate ourselves. And this is the opposite of what scripture commands us to do because God knows we need other people. We need other people. And so there are so many ways that you can get plugged in here at Vineyard. But you know, one of the primary ways that you could do it right now as you're uh, home and and watching virtually is small groups. We have many virtual small groups that are happening right now. And you can just go to uh, Vineyard's website, go to to Vineyard Network and look at those groups and find one that fits your schedule and fits your interests. Get plugged in. Get plugged in. Because this is an essential and key way that God helps us, helps us when others set us back. Finally, I want to talk about a topic, and that is when you set someone back, when we set others back. Because here's the thing we can't skip a really important story in David's life. And if we're gonna talk about David, and we're gonna draw principles and illustrations from his life, we have to talk about this. See, David eventually does take the throne of Israel and he goes on to rule for 40 years. And he's a very successful king. But here's a sad story, is that David, once he had power, he abused it. And in one instance, when he's actually supposed to be out fighting, but he doesn't go, he sees a woman. He wants that woman. Her name's Bathsheba. He has her brought to the palace. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. So he has to figure out what to do. And ultimately, he has her husband killed, Uriah the Hittite, a godly and honorable man. And David has him murdered to cover up his own sin. You see, David had experienced what it meant to be set back by others. And yet, in a moment of weakness, we see that he sets others back as well. So what do we do when we set others back? And let's be honest, We've all set others back and we continue to set others back because we continue to struggle with sin. But what does David do? Well, we see this story in 2 Samuel. Let's pick it up here. See, God sends the prophet Nathan. Why? Because God loves David and wants to restore him. So Nathan goes to David and he says, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. See the first thing that we see David do, he acknowledges his sin and he repents. He repents. He says, I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong. I got to turn back to God and away from my sin. He repents. And we see that David writes this beautiful psalm after this experience. And I'm not going to give you the whole psalm, but you get a flavor of it here from the first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David repents. We see it here very uh, clearly in 2 Samuel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He repents. He acknowledges his sin, and then he accepts God's forgiveness. He accepts God's forgiveness. We can see this clearly in the story because Nathan announces this forgiveness. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin and God does that work in David's life. And David has faith to accept that God has done it. And then finally, what we see is that David deals with the consequences. And what we find is that Nathan tells David, Because of your sin, the sword will never depart from your house. Right? Never depart from your house. And we see this come to pass when David's own son Absalom revolts against his father, starts a civil war, and wreaks havoc across the nation of Israel. And it breaks David's heart. And ultimately, his own son Absalom is killed. And again, David's heart is broken. You see, sin has consequences. God hates sin because sin is destructive. It kills, it destroys, it rips relationships apart. It rips spouses apart. It rips families apart. It rips friendships apart. It rips rips churches apart. Sin destroys and this is why God hates it with all of his heart. And what we see here, is that clearly sin has consequences in David's life. And you know what? We all know that sin has consequences in our lives because we have set others back, have we not? We've set others back. We know that there are consequences to sin. And for some of you, you've maybe never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You've maybe never repented of that sin and accepted God's forgiveness. But you know what? You know how destructive sin is. So I really want to go ahead and lead you in a prayer where you can come to God and put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit, become part of God's family, and to be set free from old patterns of sinful behavior. For some of you, maybe you already know Jesus, but you need to repent because you're putting too much stock in accolades and positions of privilege or power or your job or your possessions. And you need to repent of that because remember, no one can boast in the presence of God. And I'm telling you, if you repent of that, I think, I believe that you're going to feel God's presence more because you're going to get that junk out of there and you're going to give him space to come in and bless and work in your heart. And there may be some of you that you are stuck in sinful patterns and behavior that you've inherited from your family and from your background. And you've used those maybe as excuses. I can't be free of this because it's just how I was raised. Well, I'm here to tell you because the scripture's here to tell you, God's here to tell you that you've been given the Holy Spirit as a follower of Christ and he can move in you to break those patterns and break those chains. You've not been given a spirit of slavery you have been given a spirit of sonship and daughtership. So cry out, Abba, Father, and be set free. So I'm going to lead us now in a prayer This also is taken from Psalm 51 when David is repenting. And I think each of us just now can use this prayer as our own. So let me lead you in praying this psalm. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I do want you to share with us if you accepted and prayed that prayer to receive Christ. You can text to this number and just type in know God. We want to hear about that. We want to stand with you and pray for you. Maybe you just have a general prayer request and you can text pray and provide the prayer request there. You can also support the church financially to help us to do uh, everything and support everything that God is doing here and through the Vineyard. And we're so thankful for your gifts. We're so thankful that you, it's through your giving that we're able here at this church to be a blessing to our community and to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so there are multiple ways to give. You can see those on the screen. And so we thank you for your generosity. We thank you for being a part of the Vineyard family. You mean so much to us. We love you. God bless.